0: Acts chapter number 2 this morning, and uh, we're going to be looking at a message that uh, is titled The Gospel and Our Doctrine. Now, this past week in our conference I was preaching in, I was tasked with this uh, very subject, and so uh, I prepared this message for um, that conference, but I was also preparing it for us too, and uh, we're going to just pause for today uh, in Ephesians. We'll pick up in that next week, Uh, but I wanted to preach this message as I believe uh, there's a lot of things in regards to the gospel and doctrine that... Uh, are essential for us to understand for today. And I pray that it will be a benefit and blessing to us. And I certainly believe that we are a doctrinally grounded church. And uh, I believe that every church is called to be that. Uh, And I hope that you see through this text and through this message the importance of doctrine. And so I want to read this text in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22 through verse 26 because I believe this, this message that Peter gives on the day of Pentecost really gives a good summary overview and touches several doctrines that are essential uh, to the gospel. And so let's look at it together, and then we'll come into our text together as well. Acts chapter number 2 and verse number 22, I want to begin here. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will hope in him. For you will not abandon my soul in Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he is both dead and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. that God hath made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When we think about the gospel, the gospel has an effect on many, many things. The very message that saves us changes our life and impacts in a thorough manner. Many see the gospel as only... Uh, just something to do with salvation, although that is at the core. Don't, make, don't mistake me there. It is at the core of it. Uh, many see the gospel only in the simple terms, that uh, it is the death, burial, and resurrection. That is the simplest way to say what is the gospel. That is what the gospel is. But the gospel is so much more than that. It's not less than that, but it's more than that. It affects, understand, all aspects of our life. It affects our eternity. It affects how we live in this temporal world. It affects our home. It affects our trials. It affects our churches, our worldview. The gospel changes everything. And the focus of this message I want us to see is how the gospel has an effect on doctrine. On doctrine. Now, what is doctrine? I put this in your notes. According to Oxford Dictionary, doctrine means a set of beliefs or principles held and taught by a church, political party, or other group. We see the word doctrine throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament, and sometimes that word is translated as teaching. And the Greek term here can mean the act of teaching or that which has been taught. So doctrine is the substance of truth. That is believed and taught by the church from the scriptures. That's the simple definition I would give it. Doctrine is the substance of truth that is believed and taught by the church from the scriptures. Now, why is doctrine so important to the gospel, to Christianity? Well, without doctrine, the specific teaching and convictions of what we believe and practice... Without doctrine, what foundation do you actually have? What do you have? What is it that you actually believe? Why is it that you believe it? You see, all of this comes down to our doctrine, what we teach and what is taught. I was reading an example of a pastor who would begin his class of new students by having them try to figure out the answer to a question that has a definite answer, okay? And so he would give them a pen and a notepad and have them write down their answer. And then next to their answer, he would ask them another question. And this question was, what's your favorite song? And so they would write down what their favorite song was. And so when the answers were complete, he would reveal what the correct answer was to that first question that only has one right answer. So they would look at each other and look at their notes and see who had the right answer. And then the pastor would turn to the list of favorite songs, and then he would ask them, now which one of these songs is closest to the right answer? Well, the students would be a little puzzled about that, and they said, well, there is no right answer. A person's favorite song is just a matter of taste, right? We would all understand that. Well, then he went on to ask his students, when you decide what to believe in terms of your faith, is it more like finding the answer to the definite question... The first one that has a definite answer. Or is it more like choosing your favorite song? Would you believe that most of his students would say that choosing or settling on one's beliefs is more like choosing a favorite song? Now, I give that illustration for this example. This is what we see in a large part of Christianity today. Many believe and follow only based on what they feel is right, not in what is actually right. You see, the truth is that certain Christian circles, in certain Christian circles, doctrine is actually diminished. Well, that stuff, we don't really have to look at why we believe that, and uh, let's just keep things in a general way. Doctrine is looked at as a secondary thing, or maybe doctrine is seen as, well, that's just those boring facts, you know, they read in the Bible. Doctrine is thought to be connected from Jesus. You see, many think that as long as you're passionate about Jesus, that doctrine's not really that big of a deal. Doctrine doesn't matter so much, does it? You understand that that is some of the most dangerous thinking we have in modern Christianity. John Calvin rightly said this, that that zeal without doctrine is like a sword in the hand of a lunatic. And it's exactly true. I agree 100% with that. You see, the gospel is doctrine. And I say this in this way, the gospel affects doctrine because the gospel is doctrine. And so there's no disconnection from the gospel and doctrine of what truth is. So this is what we see beyond doubt in Peter's sermon here today. While there is not enough time to exhaust all aspects, we'd be here all day and all the rest of the year, okay? If I was trying to exhaust everything. I want us to see in summary and overview from his sermon. Where, the gospel, where gospel doctrine is found. What the gospel doctrine is revealed. And how gospel doctrine must be applied by the Christian. So notice in our notes number one this morning. I want you to see the identification of gospel doctrine. The identification of gospel doctrine. Where can we identify doctrine and why is it that important? Well... Letter A, doctrine is found, and this is just, you know, so deep, you're probably not going to be able to comprehend this. Doctrine is found in, you want to take a guess? Scripture. Doctrine is found in Scripture. Scripture. You see, the true doctrine concerning the spiritual and eternal is only found in the written word of God. Why is that? Because God alone is the author of truth. His truth is absolute. It can't be changed. It can't be diluted. It can't be altered, although people try to do this. So all that we are to believe and practice flows from the word of the living God. And friend, this is why sola scriptura, scripture alone, is so vital for the church. It means that scripture is the only source of all faith and practice in our Christianity. Now... If what we believe has another source, such as just merely religious tradition or worldly opinion, understand this, that is not a trustworthy source. That is not a trustworthy source. Everything that we believe must flow from the Bible, rightly interpreted and rightly applied. And I want you to see that Peter's sermon here, it is built upon the premise, the foundation Of the Old Testament scriptures. Now, we looked at Sunday school, how important the Old Testament scriptures are. They are just as important as the New Testament scriptures. And in verse 16 and forward, you'll notice that he begins expounding these prophecies of Scripture, saying, This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. He's quoting and tying together what Scripture has said would happen. We see him further in our own text that we read in verse 25 about David in the scripture saying David says concerning him. He's identifying the gospel with what was written in the Old Testament scriptures. Peter would later write in his life, in his letter to the church, he says in 2 Peter 1.21, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So so understand this, that the word of God you have in your hand, Old and New Testaments, they are the word of the living God. As Paul will say later in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For teaching. Sometimes that word is translated as doctrine, right? For reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. We see how important this is. There's no other source that any can claim upon gospel doctrine outside of the word of God. And yet in our world, we see many who claim certain teachings that are not founded upon the Bible rightly interpreted and applied. Now understand this, that uh, nearly everyone under the umbrella of Christianity will claim scripture as their means, right? But this is where we understand the importance of context when it comes to scripture, if you don't understand how to understand, read the Bible in its context, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. You can. And so we understand who's writing, who they're writing to, why were they writing, when were they writing, what's the subject, what's being talked about. And so we have to be careful for for those who would add doctrine to the gospel that does not belong, or those who think they're the only authority of gospel doctrine when they are not, and we look at the world around us, understand, the world around us is trying to push their doctrine, what they teach, on the church. And so often, the world's doctrine, which is completely foreign to God, is infiltrating the church in ways often unseen. I've touched on this in our, our Sola series on Wednesday evenings. If you go back and look at the first two messages, we, we cover some of the ways that is happening. But understand that the result of mixing doctrine and the attacks on doctrine has created a great divide in professing Christianities, for Christianity. There's a divide between those who are firm upon what Scripture alone teaches and those who will loosely allow whatever is permissible among their Christian circles. So we must understand that having our doctrine means that we have a definite belief about the gospel, that we must choose where we stand. Letter B, notice that doctrine not only is found in scripture, but doctrine is foundational to Christianity. This is the foundation of what we believe. Without doctrine, there's no foundation for our faith. If someone asks you what you believe, what are you going to tell them? And then when they ask you why you believe that, what are you going to tell them? I used this illustration, I think, in a Wednesday night, but I'll use it again. There's a man being interviewed by church leadership about joining a church, and, and uh, they asked him what he believed about uh, the doctrine of salvation. And he said, well, I just believe what the church believes. And then they asked him, well, what do you think the church believes about salvation? He said, well, the church believes how I believe. <laughs> and so they're puzzled by that response, and they say, okay, well, what do you and the church believe? Well, the man just said, well, we believe the same thing. <laughs> he just, he's trying to sidestep the specifics uh, of what he actually believed. Now, how can we confidently express our faith without doctrine? The answer is you can because your gospel, your faith, it's rooted in doctrine. It's rooted in this. You see, the gospel is not linked to doctrine. It is doctrine. Totally different. Stephen Lawson said this. In a quote I saw him on Twitter post, he said, Christianity without doctrine is like math without numbers and music without notes. Now, can you have music without notes? Not really. Can you have math without numbers? We wish. You can't. You can't, right? Well, I saw a response to that quote, and and somebody commented and said, well, Christianity without doctrine is about like Jesus. In other words, they're saying that uh, take away doctrine, all you have is Jesus, and that's all you need. We have to understand that is a statement that is so false. People today say this is a, this is a modern thing. I, want, I don't want doctrine. I just want Jesus. Give me Jesus. Okay, what Jesus do you want? Who is Jesus? Do you want the Jesus of the Muslims who's only a prophet? Do you want the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe Jesus is just a created being and deny the Trinity? Do you want the Jesus of the Mormons who think that he is a brother to Satan, what Jesus do you want? When it comes to Jesus, we ask, who is Jesus? Jesus is truly God and truly man. Theologians call that the hypostatic union, meaning that he is two natures and one glorious person, fully human and fully divine. Guess what, Christian? That's doctrine. That is doctrine. You can't escape doctrine uh, when it comes to the gospel and who Jesus is. And he is the foundation of all of it. First Corinthians 3.11 For no man can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the gospel and doctrine are woven together inseparably. You cannot unhinge them any more than you can unhinge your heart from your body. And one of the great detriments to many churches today is wanting only the gospel and not doctrine too. But here's the truth. If you lack doctrine, you lack the gospel. And if you lack the gospel, you cannot be a true biblical church. Much of Christianity today is stirred and directed by emotion and feeling about the gospel rather than the truth that is actually in the gospel. Alistair Begg said this, the great need is for us to be taught Theologically, not just stirred emotionally. We need theology. It's not just a, it's not, understand theology is the study of knowledge of God. All right, and, and all that that encompasses. That is not just for preachers and seminary students to study theology. Christian, everyone is a theologian to a degree. Every single one of us. Now, now, by all means, the gospel here it will affect emotion, but emotion is not the gospel's foundation. You know how many times we, we sing songs and the gospel that is in that song just stirs your soul? Sometimes I'm come to tears. Sometimes I just think about how great and deep the grace of God is. Rejoice. And, and There is an emotional response to the gospel. But emotion is not the foundation of the gospel. You don't gauge the gospel by your emotion. And so when it comes down to it, the biblical Jesus is one of doctrine. And you must know the biblical Jesus if you are to have eternal life and this is why gospel doctrine is the foundation of christianity now this leads us to consider what is this gospel doctrine I'm talking about notice within number two the revelation of gospel doctrine I'll, cut, I'll try to come through this briefly because there is so much here you, you you can't exhaust it all in one sitting but i want you to see what what doctrines does the gospel reveal now when we say the gospel is the death burial and resurrection that is true but it is so much more than just saying that simple statement. Peter's sermon gives us insight into the depth of what the gospel is. Here's what the, gospel doc, the revelation of gospel doctrine, what the gospel reveals. It reveals to us, letter A, the doctrine of God and Christ. The doctrine of God and Christ. If you look at verse 22, you'll notice that Peter is speaking to the people of Israel. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. And notice he'll start with who Christ is. He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Now, notice this little description first about Jesus. He identifies Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth. Why is this significant? You know what that points to? It points us to the humanity of Jesus Christ, the humanity of him. Now, he appeared, understand that Jesus, he appeared as all other men do and grew up in a town of Galilee as many other men did. Jesus was genuinely and truly man. Did you know there's some out there that think Jesus was just this spirit ghost that came around and did all these, all these mighty things? He wasn't. He was a literal man. He knew what it was to be a man. And when you were to, if you were to look at Christ, he would have appeared just like any one of us today who are men. Now, Isaiah the prophet says, in Isaiah 53, 2, tells us of Jesus, a prophecy about him. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root of dry ground. Notice this last statement. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. If Jesus walked in those doors and came in and sat down, he would have looked like any other man here today. He wasn't glowing like an angel. He wasn't manifesting this radiance, except for in the transfiguration when he had a specific moment of that. He appeared like a normal man. Why? Because he was a man. He was fully human. And why is that important today? Because only a real man could offer his life and blood to atone for sin. That's why the humanity of Jesus is so important. And the Israelites, they knew Jesus as a man. Peter's preaching that. But notice, secondly, he says Jesus was attested to you by God or approved to you by God. Now, what does that indicate? It shows us that God's favor was upon him in his life and through his ministry. You see, Jesus alone was the one man that the Father openly testified and put his approval on. You remember the baptism of Christ? Jesus is baptized, and we see really the Trinity all there together. you got God the Son, Jesus, God the Father speaking from heaven, God the Spirit descending like a dove. But in Matthew 3.17, the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Did you know that God has never and could never say that about any other man? Never. No man meets the messianic qualifications and no man is sinless like Jesus was. You see, Jesus lived in perfect obedience and was the only one who fits the exact credentials of who the Messiah is. And so there is none who ever have and none who ever will whom God has attested witness to as being pleased in him. Thirdly, we notice that God, Peter says with regard to Jesus that he was known by his mighty works and wonders and signs. God attested to Christ through those things. And what does that testify to us? That Jesus was also more than just a man. <laughs> He's also divine. Who can do these works but God and that God is with him? His claim upon deity is what enraged his opposers. Jesus said in John ten thirty. He said, I and my father are what? One. What did the Jews want to do after that? They took up stones, wanted to kill him. who, Who are you? A man claiming to be God, equal with God. How can you do such a thing? You understand that there's people today that still get enraged about that very idea? That truth, it's not an idea, it's a fact. You see, the proof of his deity is shown in what he did, they were evidenced. By his works. John 5.36. He says to that same crowd. The very works that I am doing. Bear witness about me that the father sent me. So that he's not just. He's not just another man. Or another prophet. He is the prophet. He is the son of the living God. God in flesh. So Peter's gospel message here, in its direct sense, reveals doctrine of Christ. But notice also how it reveals not doctrine of God. What do we see about the nature of God in this text? Notice, firstly, we see the sovereign nature of God. Look at verse number 23. Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You probably get sick of hearing this verse come from me, but I love this text. It so plainly reveals his sovereignty. The cross is an open display of the sovereignty of God running parallel with man's own responsibility for his actions. Now, who planned the cross? Was it God or was it the Jews? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. But it first started with God. First started with God. You'll notice that this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan. You know what a definite plan is? It's an unchanging and unaltering plan, a plan that is guaranteed no matter what. Now, how many of us have ever made plans and those plans don't go through like they, we thought they would, right? You planned on doing something this day and then something come up. It's like, well, that ain't happening. You thought it was a definite plan, but man, something come up providentially and it wasn't your definite plan. But well, do you understand that when it comes to the cross, there was nothing that could alter or change what was going to happen? Nothing. It's a definite plan. What God plans, he always performs. Job himself said this in Job 42 2 I know that you can do all things and that no purpose or plan of yours can be thwarted. It can't be altered. So what God plans comes to pass. We see his foreknowledge. I remind you that God's foreknowledge is not looking into the future to learn what would happen and then making his plan based on events that were out of his control. No, friend, the Greek word literally means predetermination based on his omniscient wisdom and intention. And so understand that the cross of redemption in Christ was planned long before it ever happened. And as you read from other scriptures, it was planned before creation ever happened. But notice that Peter says to the Jews, you crucified and killed him. They're the ones accountable for the, for, the, for, the, for the murder of God's son, who through that fulfilled redemption. You cannot and must not overlook the doctrine of God's sovereignty over all things, especially as it is expressed in the gospel. But secondly, with the nature of God, we consider the nature of his love. The cross speaks of God's love. Now, why did, why did God determine the death of his son on the cross? Friend, the motive behind that is his love, his grace, mercy to save sinners. We all know John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did God plan this in eternity past? Love. He set his love upon his people long ago. Matthew Mead, a Puritan of long ago, said this, Wisdom plans the happiness for man, and power and providence bring it to pass. But love has the first hand in the work. It was love that summoned the great council held by all three persons in Elohim before man and angels existed. And friend, understand that God's love is seen in the fact that this comes to pass. We look from other texts. But not only that, we see in the nature of God His holiness. You see, the cross speaks of God holding man accountable for his sin. Well, how so? If God did not plan the cross, you understand, every man who ever lives would receive God's justice for sin. If there's no cross, you and I are doomed. The cross displays God satisfying his own justice by having his son take the place of sinners. And with this, those in Christ, His people, would be freed from their guilt. And the opposite side of this truth is that those outside of Christ are held eternally accountable for their sin. Because God is a righteous and holy judge who feels indignation every day, is angry every day with the wicked. Friend, if God wasn't holy and just, the cross would not have been necessary. If He could just let your sin go unpunished and sweep it under the rug... No need for the cross, right? But he can't do that. Why, can't God not do, why can not God not do that? Because he is holy. And the judge of all the earth always does what is right. The gospel plainly reveals the doctrine of God and Christ. Notice letter B. The doctrine of man and sin is revealed in the gospel. The doctrine of man and sin is revealed. Now, considering that God's nature demands justice for sin, this leads us to to another core issue, core point of the cross. Why did Jesus die on the cross in such a way? It's because of man and his sin. This is the pervasive problem that the gospel addresses. It is the problem of sin in man and in the world. Now, you look at verse 23, and the evil of man is so clearly displayed in Peter's gospel message. Where do we see the evil of men? He says to those Jews, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you know what the greatest sin ever committed is? It's penned right here. The greatest sin ever committed is this the rejection and crucifixion of god in flesh it is the most heinous sin but you understand this sin reveals the sin that is in every individual person what is that sin it is that man by his own sinful nature runs and rejects the light runs from and rejects the light of god his holy creator read with me john 3 in verse 18 through 21 John 3 and verse 18 through verse 21. We love John three sixteen right? But often people stop there and don't read the rest of this paragraph, this stanza. He says in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever be- does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So those who have not believed, they're already in condemnation. And notice what he says in verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. But for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Notice what Jesus says there. Why have men loved the darkness? Because their works are evil. Why do they hate the light? Because the light exposes the evil of their works. Why does man have such evil deeds? Because sin came into the world through one man and is inherited into every single person. And that is our nature. Jeremiah said, 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And in man's corruption, understand that he is at war with God and unable to please God of his own flesh. Romans 8, 7 through 8, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Same thing Jesus said, hating the light. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You see, the world, why is this important, you say? The world around us would have us to think that man is mostly good and not really that bad. But it's the opposite. Minus the good. We don't have any good, and we're full of bad, we're full of sin. But understand that that idea, that concept is... Penetrating into churches. Why do the world and certain circles of Christianity think this way? Because they lack the doctrine of man and sin. And if you lack the doctrine of man and sin, you understand you'll miss the point of the whole gospel. The cross is the spectacle, spectacle of how abominable sin truly is. The gospel teaches us that God pours out his wrath upon sin that he executes the sentence that sin demands which is death. Friend, if you and I could somehow save ourselves from our sin, there's no need for the cross. Jesus did it all for nothing. We must have Jesus. Notice with me, second, thirdly, the doctrine of redemption and regeneration is seen in the gospel message. Redemption and regeneration. Notice that Peter speaking of Christ being crucified and this crucifixion is according to that predestined plan of God. And we ask, why did God plan this for Christ? We know that, there, that love is the motive here for his people. But there's, there's a certain transaction that takes place with Christ's death. And the answer to this is redemption. You see, the death of Christ on the cross teaches us about salvation in more ways than we have time to exhaust. I mean, we go to redemption, justification, sanctification, all the great things the cross brings to us. But here's what we must see at the core of the gospel, is that Christ did not die for himself, he died for his people. Because Christ had nothing worthy of death. Christ did not deserve what he endured. But his people deserved it. And it was said of him before he was ever born, In Matthew one twenty one, that Jesus, that would be his name. Why? He will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus had a specific mission to come to the world. And that mission is to accomplish redemption for his people. Now, Now understand this. Jesus did not come to attempt redemption for his people. He came to actually accomplish redemption. He did not die in hopes that he could beg some to come to him. He died in an actuality that they would come to him. Friend, Jesus paid it all. And guess what? He will get all he paid for. You see, when Jesus was crucified, it was with the intention of taking the place of sinners to satisfy God's holy justice upon them. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ once suffered for sins... The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What do you see there? Christ is the substitute, the innocent, dying in place of the guilty. Jesus is this one who gives himself on behalf of his people. And in John 10, 11, he said in his ministry, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd does what? He lays down his life for the sheep. And so by means of God, his death, God is satisfied with the offering, with the sacrifice of Jesus on behalf of his people. So that all those who are his would be brought to him by faith alone in him that is the central doctrine of the gospel the sentence upon sinners has been completely satisfied so that those who believe are now free from their guilt and punishment well how then is that work of Christ and the cross applied to me we hear the message we know what he's done how does that become personal with me well friend this is where we see the necessity of regeneration unto faith now I want you to look at verse 37 for a moment. And notice in this text, at the end of this sermon, the Bible says, when they heard this, they were cut where? To the heart. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do. Now what does this mean? They were cut to the heart? It means the very core of their soul was was pricked and, and, and cut that they were inwardly convicted. Why? Because now their eyes were opened. They, they see Jesus not as the one who, who was worthy of death like many of them thought long ago who were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But instead their eyes are opened, their heart is open, and they see Jesus from the sermon that Peter preaches, this gospel doctrine, as the Messiah, as the one who they should not have rejected. Well, how does that come to them? Did they just decide to change their minds? Were they more spiritually perceptive than others? No, friend. The answer is the Holy Spirit at work in their hearts. This is what the Spirit came to do. John 16, 8. Jesus said when he comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And this conviction led them to say, brothers, what shall we do? And what does Peter say in verse 41? Repent! Repent repentance is a turning point. And here's the reality is that without the work of the Holy Spirit no man can or will repent. The same applies to faith. You understand repentance and faith, they're two sides of the same point. They happen together at the same moment. You can't have one without the other. They are a mutual thing. And so how is it that any sinner comes to repent and believe when hearing the gospel? Because of the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit at work in them, giving them new life. Titus 3, Titus 3, verse 4 through 6. I'll read this briefly to you. We're familiar with this text. I know you're grounded in this gospel doctrine already, but it's good to be refreshed in seeing some of these things. Titus 3, verse 4 through 6. Paul's writing to Titus, a young preacher at that point, and uh, he, he reminds him of the great depth of what God's done for us. And he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of our works. You understand that? This is why it's so important, because much of Christianity today applies works to their salvation in one way or another. But clearly the Word of God says, not according to our works, but notice this, but according to His own mercy... By the washing of what? Of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Friend, the word regeneration literally here, the Greek term there in the lexicon means to experience the experience of a complete change of life. The experience of a complete change of life. You've been changed inside. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.17? If any man be in Christ, he's what? A new creation. Regeneration is the same thing as the new birth. Jesus said, you must be born again. If you're not born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so we must understand this is the work of the spirit of alone. How else could 3,000 souls be converted except through the work of the Holy Spirit? That's how it happens. So the doctrine of redemption and regeneration are evident. Notice letter D, the doctrine of Christ's resurrection and reign are evident. Why is it that the gospel has powerfully prevailed for nearly 2,000 years and will continue to prevail until the very end of time? Why is that? It's because of what Peter preaches here. You know what he gives next? Not only does he tell them about how Christ was crucified, they knew that, they're accountable for it. But he says in verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You know what Peter's telling them? The Savior, the Messiah you killed, God raised him up. He's alive. He's not dead. He's not dead. It's the resurrection and exaltation of Christ that is the reason that the gospel prevails with power. For if Jesus was still dead in the tomb, understand we have a dead Savior, and a dead Savior is no Savior at all. He can do nothing. But if he is risen from the dead and exalted to his throne in heaven and has all power in heaven and earth, guess what, friend, that's someone that can't be stopped. Can't be. Verse 32, Peter, verse 25 through 32, Peter quotes David's prophecy. I don't have time to go into that. Verse 32, Peter gives plain evidence of the resurrection truth. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and then he goes on to say, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter's saying, guess what, Jews? We saw him with our own eyes. Firsthand evidence. And this truly is the linchpin, the point where all else either crumbles or conquers. It is the truth that Christ is Risen. now what does the resurrection imply for us well one that death is no longer the victor death has claimed every man except him christ's resurrection has overcome death and proven to be proven death to be a defeated foe but not only that christ's resurrection also establishes the resurrection of the saints as being a certainty you know what paul said in first corinthians 15 the resurrection chapter verse 16 he said If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Notice he links your resurrection to Christ. That that if we're not going to rise, then Christ had not risen. Christian, gospel doctrine is what gives you security and assurance of your eternal future. Without gospel doctrine, you don't have any. But then we see Christ's resurrection flows into his exaltation. Upon his heavenly throne where he reigns sovereignly on earth and in heaven. Verse 33 through verse 36. Notice this. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out on this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven. But he himself says. The Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand. Until I make your enemies your footstool. What do you find through this? Christ was risen. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where Peter applies that, that this is the promise of Christ sitting upon David's throne. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And what does this show us? It shows us, one, that all of history is governed by the sovereign Lord. People have been out of shape over what's happening in Russia and Germany and the United States, all the... Negative nonsense and the threats of nuclear war. You know why I don't really care about that? I'm not, I'm not scared of that stuff. You don't know why? Because Christ is sovereign over everything. And nothing changes that. doesn't matter how big and mighty man thinks he is, how many nuclear weapons he has. They can't fire one unless Christ allows them to. Don't fear, Christian. But not only that, all of whom the church is and what she is called to do, because Christ is on his throne, it's unstoppable. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And based on that authority, guess what he tells them to do? He says, Go. (laughs) Go. Cross the borders of every nation and make disciples of every nation because the gospel would be successful. You see, understand the church marches forward with the gospel and we know that it will be successful and triumphant. The evidence of that is seen in our text as 3,000 souls are converted by the message of Christ in one day. And understand that as Christ reigns, his kingdom is ever expanding as the gospel transforms one person at a time. One person at a time. But I want you to see as we close out, I'll try to be quick. We also need to be affected by this doctrine in our lives. And I want you to notice number 3 tonight or this morning. The application of gospel doctrine. Just brief application for us and I'll be done. The first one is this, we need to believe and continue in all gospel doctrine. Believe and continue or live out, practice all gospel doctrine. Here's the reality. All of God's revelation in Scripture must be believed. It is not to be believed only in part, but as the whole. Now, in today's world, there's many who love the, they cherish and love the love of God, but not so much the wrath of God. They love the grace of God, but not so much the justice of God. They love the idea of man's free will, but they hate the idea of God sovereignly working all things. You understand, there's no room for us to pick and choose what parts of the gospel we like and don't like. Augustine said this, or Augustine, however you say his name, there's a great debate about that. So I'll just say it both ways, so I'm right. If you believe what you like in the gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel you believe, but yourself. We don't get to pick and choose what we want to believe and don't want to believe. And what do we find in our text? We find 3,000 souls who believe the doctrine they just heard in the gospel. And what do they do with that doctrine afterwards? They heard it in the sermon, but look at verse 42. The Bible says after they were baptized, which is the the next step of following the Lord and identifying with him, in verse number 42, what do we see? They devoted themselves to the apostles' what? Teaching, same word for doctrine, and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Friend, This is the local church. what we're to be a doctrinal church the church from the very beginning has been founded upon gospel doctrine and every true church of the risen lord continues to do so today doctrine is not an optional thing it's an essential thing so therefore we christians need to believe all of it and we need to practice it second application we need to defend and proclaim all gospel doctrine why because the reality is truth is always under attack. Why? Man hates the light. Always. Sometimes those attacks come from outside Christianity. Sometimes they come from within Christianity. I mean, why so? Because there are Christian circles that disdain doctrine. Or they disagree with you over a certain doctrine and they'll fight you tooth and nail about it. We are to call to defend doctrine. Jude says in Jude 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And I wish, I, I believe more Christians need to understand this that contending for the faith and knowing your gospel doctrine, that is not something just for your pastor to know and get up and declare to you. Pastors need help defending the faith. Pastors need the church to know gospel doctrine, to get in your Bible and know what you believe, why you believe it. Charles Spurgeon said this, Old-fashioned believers could give chapter and verse for what they believe, but how few of such remain. That was in the 1800s. How about now? There are many Christians that enter the church. They're just following a pattern. They don't really know why they're there. Or why they believe what they believe. Christian, you ought to know these things. We need to know what we believe and why believe it. And as we prepare to defend gospel doctrine, may we boldly and unapologetically proclaim it. You See, the world and the church need the doctrine found in the gospel. This is why Paul's charge to Timothy, that young preacher, was this. 2 Timothy 4, 2, and 3. Preach the word. Preach the word, be, in, be, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, doctrine, for the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers that suit their own passions. Do we see any of that today? Oh, it's all over the place, right? Doctrine is rejected and people would rather listen to fluffy nonsense that tickles their feelings. Whether people receive gospel doctrine or not, it's not our responsibility. We're just called to proclaim it anyway. And the church needs it for growth, for edification, for sanctification. And even among the outwardly professing church, understand that there is unregenerate people who need the gospel. So the gospel affects doctrine because the gospel is doctrine. And understanding that is paramount for our own day and time. And I close with these these few statistics I want to give you. In the recent state of theology survey conducted by Lifeway and Ligonier among professing evangelicals, professing Christians. It reveals some troubling insights to their answers. Let me give you a few of them. Everyone, here's the first one, everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. 65% agreed with that statement. God learns and adapts to different circumstances. 48% agreed with that statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but was not God. 43% agreed with that statement. God accepts worship from every religion. 56% agreed with that statement. Those who are under the circle of professing Christianity. So we ask ourselves, do we know gospel doctrine? Is it important to us? Has it changed you? Will you continue to dive into this doctrine As a humble student, just wanting to know God more. And friend, as you do that personally and individually, it will greatly strengthen the local church that you belong to. The more individuals who know their gospel doctrine, the stronger a church is. So let's stand to our feet and we'll pray and then we'll have a closing song. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for the sermon Peter preached here in this text. We thank you for giving us doctrine. Lord, so many view it as a secondary or non-issue that it's something we just don't have to have. But, Father, without doctrine, we don't have true Christianity. Lord, help us, Father, to have a passion and love and zeal for truth in the gospel, the doctrines found in the gospel of who you are, who Christ is, the atonement, the nature of man, regeneration, the work of the Holy Spirit, the kingdom, the church, all of these things that tie together. Lord, use us as, Father, mighty... Mighty people, Father, who would love you, know you, and declare you to the world. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.